Welcome to another exciting message from Journey Church, meeting weekly in Northwest Calgary. At Journey Church, we're encountering God and embracing people. verses 1 through 11 this morning. On the third day, a wedding took place at Canaan in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, who do you, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Well, good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing? It's okay. You can talk. How's everyone doing? Um... Before we hop in, well, first of all, did everybody enjoy that message from Pastor Dave this morning? It was, like, amazing. Um, this, uh, this Thursday, I want to tell all the students, all the young adults in the room, uh, a little over a year ago, we launched an event called The Convergence, which is a movement that uh, is taking place across our campuses here in the city. And we're seeing God do amazing things. I'm really excited about the one that's coming up. However, uh, this coming Thursday, 7 o'clock at SAIT. And part of the reason that I'm really excited about this, it was July 24th of 2017 where God began to speak to me uh, about a shift in vocation. And part of what I knew that the Lord said uh, was to begin to lead people into mystery. And I, and I thought that that was interesting. You know, what does this mean? And then the Lord said, and I want you to lead people to taste the mystery. And immediately I knew uh, that the Lord was speaking about the Eucharistic table, about the communion table, to begin to serve communion because people are going to begin to experience God in this way. Uh, so I've been here now for about a year and a half. And this is the one thing that I haven't done yet on campus that I really feel like the Lord has been leading us in. Um, in my time here, I've been privileged to be able to meet and get to know uh, the Archbishop of the Anglican Church here in Calgary, Archbishop Greg Kerr, who's an amazing guy. Um, we'll get him out to speak one of these times on the Holy Spirit at uh, one of our convergences. But he told me, he said, hey, there's a new chaplain who's going to be coming. And so we're trying something. Um, we're going to have, don't tell everybody that, we're, that it's this, but a charismatic 
type expression on campus. In other words, um, we have our Anglican chaplain who's going to come. We're going to have some liturgy. We're going to see the Holy Spirit move through the liturgy. And she's going to serve uh, the Eucharist at the end. And I told her, I said, this is amazing. And make sure you wear your collar because I, I want our students to be challenged uh, by the presence of God in the liturgy and in the Eucharist. She said, fantastic, because I want our students, our Anglican students, to be ch uh, challenged by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's do this thing. So we're, we're going to be doing this this Thursday at St. And if, if there's university students here and you're not connected at all on your campus, please come see me or Kelly Johnson up here, um, and we'd love to get you connected. So we're, I want to talk about this, this passage of Scripture this morning. And the title of this message is An Abundance of Wine. Now, I suppose that there could be different reactions uh, based on the title of that message from people in the room this morning. Some of you are like, an abundance of wine. Hallelujah. Thank God. Break it open. This is going to be a good morning. Uh, then there's going to be some others of you who are like, I can't believe he's even saying this right now. We're in the house of the Lord. He's talking about wine. And yet... Um, in fact, this is the very first miracle that took place in the, in the scriptures, in the gospels. And so I think that it's probably something that we need to pay attention to. But interestingly, actually, um, John doesn't speak of this as a miracle. John speaks of this as a sign. Uh, John is interested in two words repeatedly. Uh, one of the words is sign and the other word is glory. Over and over, you'll see these words happen in the book of John, a sign and glory. We're going to talk about glory a little bit later on, but a sign is something that points to something else. And so the question this morning is, what are we to make, about, make of this sign of wine? Now, it's interesting. Um, wine appears in the scriptures more than you may realize. There's uh, a scholar by the name of Lothar Becker who did some research on this, and he said that in the Jewish scriptures, or what Christians call the Old Testament or the First Testament, um, wine, or the cultivated vine, makes an appearance 810 times. When you then move on to the New Testament, there's an additional 169 times in which wine, or the cultivated vine, makes an appearance. So wine actually gets a lot of airplay within the scriptures. And part, so we have to begin to ask why. And one of the things that you'll begin to notice is that wine is actually used as a symbol for the future blessing of the people of God. And so you'll see repeatedly several of the prophets who will use wine as a symbol of hope and a symbol of future blessing. Um, we see this actually as early as the book of Genesis. So in Genesis 49, right toward the, uh, the end of Genesis... You have Jacob, and Jacob is now old, and he's there, and he begins to prophesy over his sons. And when he gets to Judah, this is what he prophesies. Let's go to the next slide. Yeah, he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's uh, staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations be his. 11, he will tether his donkey to a vine. Pause right there. Okay, we're not used to this kind of language. The point that, he, that what he's saying here is uh, the abundance is going to be so great in, in the future 
that the wine, the, the um, branches of the vine are going to be so thick that you can tether your donkey to them. And his colt to the choicest branch, and he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes, and his eyes will be darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. So you can see he's using this as this picture of kind of future blessing. Well, Amos gets in on the action, the prophet Amos, and he says that there will be a time that will come when the mountains will drip with wine, and the hills shall flow with it. So he's... Amos is picturing wine in abundance. He's saying, you know, I mean, the streets are going to be flowing with wine. So there are actually, if you go through, like I said, there's 810 references in, in the first testament, another 169. You could go on and on and find all, the, all of these different scriptures uh, that deal with wine uh, as a positive or future blessing. But not always. Wine is, interestingly, a bit of a mixed metaphor theologically in the scriptures. So you have, on the one hand, the prophets who are speaking of wine as future blessing and hope. But then you have other times when they're speaking of wine and using it as a picture for judgment. Uh, so Isaiah, he talks about this time when the people who are oppressing Israel, he says this, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. We're off to a lovely start this morning. And they will be drunk on their own blood as with wine. Joel gets in on the action of using wine as a metaphor for judgment too. He says, swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes for the wine press is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. So here you have this picture of the wine press actually as a place of judgment. And this language gets picked up again in the book of Revelation. And notice how similar uh, the language is in Revelation as it was in Joel. In Revelation 14, it says that the angel swung his sickle on earth. Okay, there's a sickle again. Gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridle. So theologically, we, we now have this kind of interesting picture because there's both uh, there's a mixed metaphor. Wine both speaks of blessing... But wine also apparently speaks of, of judgment. But here's the thing. Wine is also, when you look at the scripture, uh, you have a mixed metaphor when it comes to personal use. So take Noah, for example. Um, Noah, often you'll see him referred to as scholars as kind of another Adam. Think of this. Um, the first Adam came. And he and his family were the first ones on the earth. And so they're responsible now to fill the earth and to take care of the earth and to do all of these things. Well, now there's been a flood, and Noah is kind of, and his family, he's kind of like a second Adam. So there's this scholar by the name of Gisela Craiglinger, and she says this, Noah is called a man of the earth. Uh, he is the new Adam, and like Adam, his name refers to the earth. The reason she's saying this is because uh, in Hebrew, Adam, from which we get the name Adam, comes from the word Adama, which means soil. So there's a link between Adam and Adama, and now she's saying now there's some kind of link with Noah and his name. And she says it's striking, though, that Noah does not begin by planting grains as his ancestors did, 
Rather, he plants a vineyard and produces wine, which we are later told gladdens the human heart and brings comfort in times of distress and worry. Okay, so wine uh, gladdens the human heart and it brings comfort in times of distress and in times of worry. You see a lot of people talk about Noah. Oh, Noah was the father of wine and all of this kind of stuff, which is, which is all great, uh, except for the fact that the very first thing that, Adam, that Noah did after God chooses him and his family to save the entire earth is he goes and plants a vineyard and gets drunk. And wine caused Noah a lot of problems in his life, like a lot of problems in his life. Uh, I, saw, I saw something, on, I think it was on Facebook, I was trying to find it again today, where somebody had posted this quote that, that said something to the effect that um, uh, alcohol for me is, is both the cause and the solution to my problems. And uh, this is interesting because you kind of get that sense here with Noah, and you get that sense in the Bible, like, okay, there's some positive, but man, it's also troubling. So wine in the scriptures, you have a mixed metaphor, both theologically, and then you have a mixed metaphor, actually, which has to do with personal use and personal life. And so we arrive at our text this morning of Jesus' first miracle, and it's interesting because most of the times when we speak of uh, holiness and in a sermon and wine is involved, the point is, is that we are to stay away from it. But this text in John 1 uh, has, as you'll see in a minute, everything to do with holiness, and yet it's about an abundance of wine. I mean, we kind of look at Jesus in this story and say, like, but like, they've already been at the wedding for a while, and they've, oh, Jesus, they've already had quite a bit of wine. Like, this is kind of a bit of a scandalous sign here. But this is what's going on. But then you get to verse 6, and you notice a really important detail in this text. Here's what it says. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding 20 to 30 gallons. What's important here is to pause and to let that sink in. That the jars that Jesus called for are not the typical type of jars that were used to house wine. Some of us, I, I used to do that. I would think of this thing of uh, Jesus called Robert Mondav and say, hey, can we borrow a few of the barrels that you use for your wine? And, and can you bring those over? I'm about to do something crazy in this place, right? Uh, but this is not what happens. He doesn't borrow wine barrels or anything like this. He gets these containers, which we're told are used for ceremonial washing. And this should begin to set off all kinds of signals in our head. Like, whoa, 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 something different is going on here. This is not just about wine at a party. There's something deeper going on, and it has something to do with cleansing. And these jars, by the way, um, they didn't hold water that people would drink. The type, what, what they were for is they would be found at the entrance of the homes uh, of Jewish people, and you would go, before you entered into their home, you would take water from this jar, and you would cleanse your hands, and then you would cleanse your feet, and you would do this so that you would become clean enough to enter their home and clean enough to go to their table and to be welcomed at their table. So there's this 
uh, Catholic theologian by the name of Ronald Rollheiser, and he says this, by washing in this way, you made yourself clean so that you could join the household and sit at the table with them. So in other words, the water and the jars that Jesus borrowed, these were a means of self-purification. You would clean yourself to make yourself uh, able to come and sit at the table. So I think part of what the sign that John's talking about here is, is that there's a new type of cleansing that's taking place. There's a new means of, of purification. There was a, an early church father in the fourth century theologian by the name of Cyril of Jerusalem. And Cyril of Jerusalem actually said, well, you know what, Jesus is actually beginning to set a precedent here. Because while in this story he turns water into wine, what he'll later do is he'll begin to turn wine into blood. Now, some of you are like, wait, 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 wait. He's been hanging around those Anglicans now too long. Isn't that like an Orthodox or a Catholic thing? I know the Baptists don't believe that. You know, this, to do this is actually to miss the point. Jesus did say, I've come to create, and there's a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. And the point is that something has happened in and through Jesus whereby we do not have to cleanse ourselves anymore to find a place at this table. But Jesus has enacted something and has done something and continues to do something in and for us whereby he becomes the means of our purification. He becomes our holiness so that he makes a place for us at this table. There's a new Cleansing taking place now in and through Jesus. So, we used to sing this song, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And when we begin to look at this, it's here that the mixed metaphors of wine begin to make sense. They only make sense when we look at the cross of Jesus because when we come to the cross, we find that Jesus both bore our suffering, bore our judgment, and produced hope. So the metaphor of wine as hope and the metaphor of wine as judgment actually converge in the cross of Jesus. Now, I want to clarify something here when I speak of Jesus uh, bearing judgment. We have this really ugly theology sometimes where we talk about God the Father almost as, as some divine child abuser who really wanted to take his wrath out on humanity, and Jesus kind of had to hold him back, and, and he said, well, fine, I'll just I'll take it out on my son instead. And the, the problem with this, and, the, and that God, really, you know, Jesus is on the cross, and God couldn't look at Jesus anymore, just distance from him. Oh, he was too sinful. God couldn't look at it. The problem with this is that Christians, uh, the very foundation of Christian belief is a belief in the Trinity, which means we do not believe in three gods. We are monotheists. We believe in one God who, who we see as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but they are all one God. And what we've done sometimes is tried to divide the Trinity on the cross and say, well, really, that was just Jesus, but God the Father is way over there somewhere, and he doesn't even want to look. You know, they're kind of divided. It's like, no, 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 no. Jesus willingly 
chose to go to the cross to bear judgment. By the way, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah talks about this. We have this thing of saying, oh, he went to bear, you know, the judgment of God, and God just couldn't stand anyone. Isaiah said, we esteemed him smitten from God, but it was our iniquity that was on him. He went to bear our judgment. And so we see in Jesus these themes of judgment and, and hope colliding and, and coming together. Jesus is our hope. Now, I want to go back to the story for a minute and ask, what happens when Jesus shows up at a party? <laughs> One of the first things to note, and this is an important thing, whenever Jesus shows up at a party in the scriptures, you can be certain that power authorities and structures and the normal ways of doing things will shift. And so what I want to tell you this morning is if you are comfortable with the way that power normally works, if you're comfortable with the way that influence normally works within a society, you should probably not invite Jesus to your party because he will mess the entire thing up. So when you were at a wedding like this, um, there were a distinction in lines and roles with various people. I'll give you three. At the very center at all times, for us, who is at the center of a wedding? Come on, ladies. Who's at the center of a wedding for us? The bride. For in this time, at the very center of the wedding was the groom. And the gr all attention was on the groom at all times. And there was always a figural spotlight, so to speak, on the groom. Now, if you were to go outside of the center a little bit and go kind of toward the peripheral, uh, there you would see the chief steward. And the chief steward had, was not the center of attention, but had an important role kind of in the peripheral. If you were to go way outside, somewhere hidden in the background, the people that nobody sees would be the servants. And the servants would be out there. But when we get to this story, what ends up happening is there's suddenly this emergency that takes place uh, at the wedding. And this is an emergency for us. If we ran out of wine, we'd be like, okay, we ran out of wine at the wedding, whatever. Just, you know, go have some water or whatever, right? There's some Perrier over there. Uh, for them, this is a social disaster that would disgrace the entire family. And so Mary sees this, and she calls Jesus and says, hey, 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 you got to do something. But notice that Jesus actually is not like, oh, yeah, this is, there's a disaster here, and I need to obey mom. He's kind of like, eh, I don't know. So there's an author by the name of Andy Crouch. He said this, in a few words, Jesus signals that a host of existing assumptions of power and authority no longer apply. He will not simply act out of filial responsibility to his mother, right? She says, hey, you need to do this. He says, woman, I don't recommend that. Woman, you know, my hour has not yet come. And Crouch goes on to say, and the impending social disaster that prompts her request is not enough to motivate Jesus. Jesus is not present to simply maintain and reinforce the customary structures of authority, which I will echo for us because sometimes as a church, we want Jesus to be present in our midst to maintain the types of structures and authority and power that the world has. And Jesus is just not going to do that. You'll see throughout the scriptures, actually, whenever Jesus shows up to a party, uh, power structures shift. Those who seem to hold all of the attention in the middle of the story, like the, like the bridegroom and his parents, 
suddenly find themselves in an emergency and have no means of doing anything about it. And so all of a sudden they shift to the background. And what we read here actually is that the people who are way in the background who are never seen suddenly become massively important. And this actually happens over and over again. Anytime Jesus shows up to a gathering, anytime he shows up uh, to a party. And Mary actually prophesied about this uh, in, in Luke 1. Mary said this, he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. When Jesus comes to a party, power structures change. And we like to think of this as Jesus just likes to come and level everything. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Well, actually, this... I don't think that that's always true. I think we're welcomed on evil, equal ground at the cross. But Jesus actually inverts power structures. Those who are at the bottom, Jesus rises to the top. But those who are at the top, Jesus will often bring down a few notches. Uh, sometimes we see this power change in obvious ways. There's this story. I love the story. You remember the, uh, the Pharisee named Simon and Jesus goes to his house? And there's a lot of cultural things going on that we won't get into this morning. But Simon is trying to diss Jesus publicly. And so Jesus comes in, and all of a sudden this woman from the background, she comes in, and she bows down, and she begins to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and begins to dry them with her hair. And in a very public way, what Jesus does in this moment is he takes Simon who is a very influential religious guy, and he brings him down a few notches publicly. But this woman, who is considered a nobody and unclean and a sinner and everything, he lifts her up and he dignifies her in front of the whole crowd. But our story is a little different this morning. And it reminds me, because all of the things that are happening in this story, Jesus is doing behind the scenes. Nobody realizes that Jesus has done this. Jesus has intervened in this situation, but nobody really knows except for those who are way in the background. And it reminds us this morning that God's power is often hidden in the world. And this is an important thing, that just because you cannot recognize God's power does not mean it is not at work. I'm going to say that again. Just because you can't see God's power, just because you cannot recognize God's power, does not mean God is not working. Some of you are praying for your loved ones who are far from God. Some of you are stuck in situations in your life, in your finances, in your job. Things feel like they are falling apart at the seam and you feel like God does not hear you. But just because you can't see God at work does not mean God is not at work. God's power is often hidden. It's strong, but it can sometimes be, be hidden. But here's the thing. This doesn't just show us that God's power is often hidden somewhere on the margins. It also shows us that actually the very nature of God's power works very different than we think it's going to work sometimes. The final verse of this story, verse 11, John 2, 11 says this. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. It's the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. 
glory is a very weighty word in the Scripture. Actually, in Hebrew, the word glory is the word kavod. And kavod literally means heavy or weighty. And so anytime you see the word glory used in the Scripture, you can be sure that it's heavy with significance and heavy with meaning. But I'm not sure that's anywhere heavier than it is in the book of John. The word glory in the book of John, it grows in significance throughout the book. And it grows in its occurrence. More and more, this word glory appears. Um, In chapter 12, we read this. It says, the hour has come, says Jesus, for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he says, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And notice for a minute how similar this is to our text this morning. When Mary tells Jesus to do something, here's what he says. My hour has not yet come. But in John 12, Jesus says, my hour has come. The hour has come. You know, what is this hour that Jesus is referencing about? Well, he says it's about his glory. He says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And verse 24 tells us exactly what that means. Uh, It means the cross. Look at Jesus' prayer a few verses later. He said, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. When Jesus speaks of revealing his glory, or the hour for revealing his glory, he's speaking about his death. And this is a key for us to understand Jesus' power. It's not only often hidden, it also works very differently than we might expect. The power of God is a cruciform power. Cruciform simply means cross-shaped So when I asked a moment ago, you know, what happens when Jesus shows up to a party? The answer is that the power structures shift. But in the kingdom of God, actually, power always looks different anyway. So what what he's doing when he's raising those from the bottom is he's actually saying, well, this is what power actually looks like in the kingdom of God anyway. And when we realize this, that power for God For us to understand power is to look through the cross and that power is always crossing. What does that produce in us? Well, typically it produces a, oh, really? Really? Because none of us like, we don't like to talk about suffering. We don't like to talk about bearing a cross or taking up a cross. But here's the thing. That is not the response that it produced at the wedding. At the wedding, it produced an absolute abundance of joy And in fact, we find that while the power flowed from a mysterious source to most in the background, and while glory works in mysterious ways, it actually also produces a mysterious and surprising result in us. And that's joy. Weddings are a place of great joy. I I agree with Dorothy Sayers here who said the greatest sin of the Christian is to be joyless. 
Now, uh, we're not talking here about those who are, who are wrestling with depression and, and things like that. We're not laying a weight on you. But some of us, we come into church and, and really we're just so upset about every little thing and we are joyless. This is not what the kingdom of God is to produce in us. What the kingdom produces in us is joy. And that the first sign that Jesus did was to provide an abundance of wine at a wedding. I mean, there were the equivalent of like 750 bottles left over at this wedding. This is like John holding up a megaphone and shouting to us, the whole thing is about joy. Even when we look at the cross, it's about joy. Paul, Paul suffered more than probably any of us ever will. And yet he would write from prison while shackled. And these were not like prisons today, right? I mean, he was right, like from a dungeon shackled, but he would say, rejoice, rejoice. And again, I tell you, rejoice. Let your joy be evident to all. And he was the kind of guy who would be in prison and he would begin to sing songs. He was so filled with the joy because that's what the kingdom of God produces in us. And here is where the other paradox of wine comes in. We looked at the theological paradox. But there's a very practical paradox here, too, that's demonstrated to us at this wedding. It's all right here in the story. This story tells us something of how the world, and I'll use the term idols, work within the world. We think of idols as, you know, these uh, little metal objects or wooden objects that people carried around. But idols can be a whole lot of things that get their grip into us. And this wedding, how it was supposed to go, actually tells us about how idols work. The point of this wedding was that uh, when you were to come... There were going to be people who were going to serve you wine, but what was going to happen is that there was going to be a little sleight of hand that was going to happen during the wedding. They would give you the good stuff first, and then over time, the quality of that wine, once you got a little too tipsy to notice, they would decrease the quality of wine, decrease the quality of wine, decrease the quality of wine. It's interesting, actually, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 1, he's prophesying, he says, your silver has become dross and your choice wine has become diluted with water. He said, this is what the idols will do to you. What will an idol do? They will take choice wine and dilute it with water. But what does Jesus do? Jesus takes water and actually produces the best wine. And here is how idols work in our life, and more of us have them than we think have them. But the idols will always give you the appearance of abundance, and they will always give you the best first. And you will taste it, and you can get hooked on whatever it is, and they will then decrease the quality of both whatever it is you're hooked on and of your life. But it really depends on who's serving the wine, because when Jesus serves the wine, the wine that Jesus serves only gets better. 
And they noticed, they said, well, you know, everybody, everybody usually serves the best wine first and they decrease the quality, you know, over time. But our God is a God of increase. Idols work on the law of diminishing returns. They give you the good stuff and then they diminish and diminish and diminish. But God is a God of increase. There is no bait and switch with Jesus. Joy does not become diluted over time. With Jesus, the wine just keeps getting better and better and better. There is no scarcity in the kingdom of God. Isaiah said this, and by the way, if I, I think if we could actually grasp how incredible the grace of this is and how amazing the abundance of God is, we would be left tipsy too. But Isaiah said this, of the increase, there's the word, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. Can, can, we, can we even grasp that? He is such a God of increase that he said, oh, of my kingdom and of my peace, it's always increase and there's no end to the increase. He works the complete opposite of how they were working at, at this wedding. God breaks the law of diminishing returns and he invites us to his table of ever-increasing joy and peace. One of the old saints said it like this, the path to heaven lies through heaven and all the way to heaven is heaven. <laughs> the wine with Jesus just keeps getting better and of the increase with him, there shall be no end. And this morning, he invites us to his table of increase to taste of the joy that will increase and will only get better and better. I'm going to ask the servers to come this morning. And there are three things that I, I just want to leave you with today. The first is that what God will do at this table is he will empower us to bear a cross in the world. Somehow we are changed at this table. But do not let that decrease your joy because this is a feast of joy for the people of God. The God of increase wants to feed us from his very life today. For some of you while you are taking this, here's, I want to remind you of this. God is going to meet you here but the way that God meets us is often not evident. Some of you have been praying. Some of you have been pressing through for things. And it feels like it's not happening and nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. God is at work in ways that you cannot see. Sometimes we are praying for our kids and we feel like nothing is happening. And yet they're like, you know, out at the club and miserable. Because the Spirit is at work in their life. And the Spirit is sending people in their path that we know nothing about. God is working in the peripheral even when we cannot see it. Don't stop praying. Be reminded as you take of this meal today of the ever-increasing abundance of God who works for you behind the scenes. But the third thing I, I want to say is, is this, and I think it's vitally important, is that there's a cleansing that takes place at this table. God 
can break the power of the idols in our lives at this table. And the problem is that a lot of us, we, we grew up and we feel like, well, if I have sin, the, you know, the scripture says to examine myself. And if I come in an unworthy manner, uh, then I can't come. And man, you know, there's going to be dreadful consequences. So I actually kind of, I've been avoiding the table because of the idols in my life. We don't have time to get into that scripture. That is not what that text means at all. When we do that, when we are caught, when we feel the grip of the idols and we avoid this, what we're doing is we're saying, you know, I just want to go back and take those jars and cleanse my own hands and I want to cleanse my own feet. You cannot make yourself clean enough to come to this table. But the great grace of Jesus will meet you as you take the bread and as you take the wine and will break the power of the idol, will break the power of the things that are holding us back. So if you feel today like you are caught in sin, if you feel like your life is going nowhere and you do not feel worthy to come, none of us makes ourselves worthy to come to this table. And I invite you today to come and to taste of the joy of forgiveness and the peace of Jesus Christ. Why don't we come even now as, as they serve? Thanks for listening to us today. For more information about who we are, head over to myjourney.church or look for us on your favorite social media outlet.